Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. See that introduction. Gets me going. We're in our series called Boot Camp Family Challenge. Now, in uh, 1980, the world championship boxer by the name of Sugar Ray Leonard, he was uh, at the top of his game. He'd gone on a long streak of wins. Uh, the three separate boxing organizations had crowned him the world champion. So he decided to do a fight for a new and upcoming fighter out of South America called Roberto Duran. And Sugar Ray was known as just a very strategic fighter. He's very elusive. You couldn't land punches on him. And uh, he would kind of wear you down. And then like a surgeon, he'd kind of cut you up. Uh, as a matter of fact, today Floyd Merriweather uses a lot of the same techniques and style as Sugar Ray. And Sugar Ray kind of pioneered this. And so he was going to have a huge payday and a very small payday for this guy out of South America, Roberto Duran. And they were going to fight in Montreal. And so what happened is uh, in 1980, they came together to fight. And somehow in the process of prepping for this, Roberto Duran was saying things in the press that were being printed and somehow got into Sugar Ray Leonard's head. And he, he basically said, you know, I'm a better athlete, and he's afraid to fight. He can't take a punch and all this. And so his trainers kept telling Sugar Ray, you know, look, he's just trash talking. Don't pay any attention. Fight your game. You'll beat him no matter what. You're a superior fighter, bar none. So what happens is that bell rings, and guess what happens? Is Sugar Ray goes out there, and for some odd reason, his strategy of how he'd won every fight before that, he throws out the window, and he tries to go punch for punch, toe-to-toe with Roberto Duran, and at the end of the fight, he loses to him in a unanimous decision. He just couldn't do it. Now, what happened is they had made so much money off that fight, they had two other rematches, and Sugar Ray Leonard dismantled him in the other fights. What is interesting is the moral of that story is when you've got a strategy and a plan, it's best to stick with it because you can lose real easily. Now, Mike Tyson, he has a phrase. He says, everybody's got a plan until you're punched in the face, right? <laughs> they go, okay, that makes sense. But, but the thing about it is this, is that the, you live in a world and you're, you know, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're married with kids, whether you're grandparents, is you live in a world that is going to punch you in the face, and it's going to punch you in the face at any given moment. And sometimes you have no idea when it's coming. And so this whole series, the Boot Camp Family Challenge, is an opportunity over six weeks. Each week we issue you a challenge. It's up to you, kind of like the Spartan Race. You know, you can kind of do it to challenge yourself to help you strengthen your family, grow your family, uh, really give your family the capacity to withstand being punched in the face by this world. And last week we talked about writing a family mission statement. Do you know what your mission is as a family? And if you ever sat down, we gave you a worksheet to do that. If you'd like to go back and do it, go to the website. You can download it right there. You ask questions, how to get your kids involved. Um, It's really a lot of fun. And today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about choosing the field manual for your life and how to stick with it. Now, the reason we're going to talk about that, because you live in a world where everything is becoming less clear. As information access goes up, 
as the continents and the borders shrink. And what we mean by that is that you can uh, see what's happening in sub-Saharan Africa as easily as you can in your own neighborhood today. Data, media gives us so much access is that it's becoming less clear in the world in which we live. And what can I share with you today? What can I give you that what's going to help you navigate the crazy times. When our world is trying to redefine everything, include everything, we have activists protesting everything. I think we have activists today who are protesting French toast. Why? Well, because the world is becoming crazy. There's becoming more options. And so what could I possibly share with you that's going to help you navigate this, clear things up, give your family some direction? Well, the, the whole thing about foothills is different than a lot of other churches. And I kind of wanted to give you just a little preview, especially if you're new, or you're visiting or you're watching online for the first time. And it's very important to understand this, uh, to be a part of our church uh, and to kind of be a part of our community. And that is this, is I believe at the very core of my being that the whole goal of being a part of a church is that you learn how to own your own faith. It's about your faith. You see, it's not enough to just attend a church where you feel like the pastor has all the answers and is super smart. Now, I believe it's important for people who do what I do to know their stuff. They, should, they need to know the Bible. They need to take the time to research and study to understand exactly what the Bible is addressing and then how that translates into everyday life. But that's only half the equation. That's not enough. The other half of the, question, of the equation is this. In order for your faith to be strong, in order for your faith uh, to really become what it was intended to be is that you have to own it. It has to become your own. What, what I think you should do is not pertinent to what you believe you should do because it's your faith and it's your life and you're making the decisions and you're the one walking with God. And so it's key that you become the faith-filled, faith-directed, faith-led, faith person that you need to be. And the best way for that to happen is for me to give you truth. Okay, it's very important. I give you truth. And what I believe is that if it's true, it's God's truth. So if there's like a, a scientific fact out there that's proven to be true, well, my opinion is, is well, God already thought of that. You know, we just figured it out which of course is historically why science was birthed in the first place. Uh, it actually originated out of the church, out of people following Christ, wanting to discover more actually about the nature of God by looking at creation and studying it. And so uh, maybe there's an economic truth or maybe there's a, a historical thing. You, you look back and you realize, wow, uh, if we get truth, then we get God's truth. Now, we start with biblical truth. That's where you start. But then what we do is we dig into the philosophical and logical implications of that truth. We also want to go back and look at how history accurately reveals God's truth. And so the real key thing is that is it's important for me to share with you things that help you think about your faith. And at its core, and this is very, very important to understand, 
at its core, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a truth claim. Okay, that's why it says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not an emotional experience claim. What it is, is it's a truth claim, first and foremost. Now what happens is when you know that truth, it creates an emotional response, right? But what happens is, is it's not driven by an emotional, it's actually driven by a truth of God. That's called revelation. And so you, you have to grasp that first. And then all this other emotional stuff, which is awesome and cool, comes as a response to that. But the problem today is that most people are eschewing, which is a weird way of saying, they're neglecting and ignoring the truth claims of the gospel. They're ignoring those and just saying, well, what's true is whatever I experience. And that, of course, is uh, not what it means to follow Christ in discipleship. So I believe the best way is for me to give you truth to help you think about it, all right? To give you facts and to give you uh, what the Bible says about a particular topic so that you then can think about it and it can become yours. You can go into a small group. This is why small groups are so important to us. And, and you can chew it over and you can think about it and you can dig into it. Because all transformation begins with the renewal of the mind first. That's Romans 12. It starts there, and then it goes out into all these other areas of your life. Now, that's just how we're a little bit different. That's how I roll as my 14-year-old. That's my vibe. That's my jelly jam. Right there. Or is it just jam? See, I get jelly jam. Oh, never mind. Now, since growing and developing your faith is my primary goal, it's my calling and mission in life, it's very important for you to know and understand what it is that we're trying to do up here. Now, if you're the type of person that needs a pastor that is going to tell you what to think and tell you what to do, then you're going to be really frustrated here. Now, if that's how you're wired, that's cool. I'm not trying to say that's a bad thing. I'm just simply saying that you'll be frustrated here. So there's some churches where they tell you what to do and how to behave and what rules to follow and all that kind of stuff. I'd be glad to help you find those. But you'll be frustrated here because what I'm trying to do is I want you to think. I want you to feel. I want your head and your heart to get aligned because that's when your faith explodes. See, and that's when it becomes yours. And, and so that's really a big deal to me. I want to help you find where you need to be in the kingdom of God. And if that's what you need, let me help you find that place. The other thing is this, is that if you're the type of person that, is, that uh, culture is the most important thing to you, you're highly motivated by uh, uh, what's really, really cool and really, really hip, uh, and that's your top priority, you're going to be really frustrated at Foothills. Because I'm as far from cool as you can get. You know, um, that's, just, that's just not my calling, mission, or gift in life. Uh, there's about controversy in my family right now over this whole situation. And that is, is that, um, uh, I don't know why, but I feel like I should grow out my beard. Never done it before, you know? And right now it's in the middle school phase. Awkward. <laughs> it's really, really awkward. And, and my, my wife is like, would you please, please shave that. It doesn't look good. It's, I go, well, some people like it. And she's like, well, I don't like it. And I'm the one that counts. Yes, love of my life, apple of my eye. So I thought I'd just get the whole church involved and um, <laughs> tell you guys about it. So if you have an opinion about that, you can text your opinion to it doesn't really matter and we'll make sure we get that. <laughs> so I'm having fun. I hope you are too. When it comes down to it, 
And the truth that I'm gonna share with you today is this, and that is, is that you have a field manual for your life that you're using already. My question is, do you know it? Do you know what it is and do you know where it comes from? Because the bottom line is, this is the truth, is that there's only really basically six options. Now you, you can, you know, find subgroups within those six, but there's really just six options to pick from and that's it. And whether you know it or not, you've already picked one of those, maybe subconsciously. And what I wanna to do today is I wanna help you dig into the decision that you've made, even if it was a subconscious one, and help you think about that. Because in the end, the field manual that you choose has a huge impact on your life, massive impact on your family. It's how, what you think is true, how you process truth statements, and whether or not you act on them or not. So I, basically what I wanna to do today is help you evaluate your own decision process in the field manual that you have chosen. So let's go through the six options that are out there. The first option is this. It's called atheism. It's also known as scientific materialism or secularism. Now, I could talk about the philosophical incongruence of atheism. I, I could talk about the implications of, on life practically of atheism as a field manual for life. But I'll, I'll just simply point this out is that I don't think it's a good choice because you can't find a book that says how to be a better spouse in the atheistic section of your library. You can't go to Amazon and find the atheist way of how to raise your kids. Those books don't really exist. 95% of those books that are written are God doesn't exist and here's why and people who believe in God are dumb. So that's basically the vast majority of the literature that comes out. So from a practical standpoint, it's just not a great field manual choice for life because there's just not really any stuff to read and study on, on how to have a better family life, how to be better married, how to do this and sort. So there's that option. Now, no, most people know this. 96% of the people in the world know this. And so what they do is uh, there are four other choices now and they're all religious in nature. Okay. So the first one is atheism, but 96% of the church people don't really buy that. So they pick the, one of these four. And the first one is called the Vedas. And the Vedas are all of the religious writings of the Hindu religion. They're very vast. They're very old. They're, they're immense. And unless you understand Hinduism, uh, I can't really explain to you, you know, it takes a while to kind of get up to speed on it. Suffice it to say is that there's a large group of people that have chosen the Vedas as their field manual. The second one is called the Tripitaka. The Tripitaka basically means three baskets or three bowls, and it is for Buddhism. And in the Tripitakas, basically, uh, there was an oral tradition that was given uh, for over 700 years. And it was uh, based on a fact, a story of there was a prince who lived inside of a palace, and one day he got outside of the palace, and he was... Uh, really bothered by all the suffering and pain in the world. So he went on a journey to try to figure out the answer to suffering and pain in the world. His name was Guantama Siddhartha. And he was sitting under a tree and he finally figured out the answer to all suffering and pain in the world. And he became known as the Buddha, okay? And he was actually a very skinny guy, but he's become kind of a little plump guy. And he's always sitting. And the reason why is because he's sitting... Uh, he was sitting under the tree when he was enlightened. Okay, and so that's where that came. And so 700 years, there was an oral tradition and the tradition was all about how to set up a monastery and how to run a monastery and how you live in a monastery, how to be a good monk. 
okay? And those are called the Tripitakas. Now, the, the next religious document that people use as a field manual is called the Quran, okay? And the Quran was written in the 6th century, which was the 500s, by an, um, a, a man named Muhammad. Uh, he started in Mecca, but then he went to Medina, and he had visions, and he had 149 or 146, oh, the number, anyway, uh, visions, and he wrote them down in this book. And they start with the longest ones, they're called surahs. So the longest one is the first one, and then they progressively get shorter, okay? And that is called the Quran. They're not in a chronological order, they're just in order based on length, okay? So that's called the Quran. And right now, the second largest group of people in the world, Muslims, use the Quran as their field manual for family life, for marriages, and all of those things. The next one is the Bible. Now, if you want to know a little bit about the Bible, the Bible is in two sections, Old Testament and New. The Old Testament covers the period of time before Jesus was born. The last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, was written 400 years before Jesus was born. So there's a big gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament by the, itself is called Judaism. Okay, it's called Judaism. And what happened is they, they also, in the Christian Bible, it's called the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's called the New Covenant or the New Testament. And it begins with four biographies on the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then there's a book of history that covers 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead. So it goes for 30 years. And in that period of time, all of these churches were being started in various towns. And so the rest of the, the books of the New Testament, you know, Corinthians, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Thessalonians, these are named after the towns where all, there were letters written to the churches that were started in those towns. Okay, so that is the New Testament. And the reason why the Old Testament is a part of the Christian Bible is because the Old Testament is used to argue that Jesus is the Messiah. The point of the Old Testament is being included was not to say, hey, we're still living under the Old Covenant, but to point out that Jesus is the Messiah, prophesied in the Old Testament, and he comes and fulfills Okay, what the law could never do. And you get a lot of this in Romans. He talks about how this all works out. So I want you to understand that, is that that's what the Bible is about. And right now, the Bible has influenced the largest group, almost 3 billion people across the globe. There's a lot of different variations of it, but when you boil it all down, that's just one of the six options is the Bible. And then the last one is the most popular in America today. It's the most popular. And it's called pragmatism. Now, this is how pragmatism works. I am so busy, I have no time to figure out all of this stuff and how it works. So I'm just going to do what works for me. Okay, so that's kind of what pragmatism starts from. I'm going to do what works for me. And so this is really common in our culture today. Say, well, hey, you do you and I'll do me. Uh, what works for you, awesome, but it doesn't really work for me. Or I'm going to do what works for me, you do what works for you. And so that, that kind of comes out of pragmatism. What a lot of people don't realize, though, is that pragmatism at its core is actually a philosophical position that is highly defined. And there's a couple things about it that is important to understand. And the first one is this, is that, uh, is that it's driven by a very particular thing. Now, how many of you go to a restaurant 
and you decide to go out to eat. You're thinking, I'm going to eat a really great meal, man. I want to go out. I'm just going to have the best meal. I'm so hungry, and I just need some really good food, and I'm going to go out. So you sit down, and you go, okay, I want to order the thing off this menu that I'm going to hate the most. It's going to make me feel sick to my stomach, and I'm going to regret that I ate it for the next 48 hours, and that's what I'm going to buy, and that's what I'm going to pay for. I don't think anybody thinks that way, right? You, you pull out the menu, and what's your first thing is, well, what looks good? What sounds good? You know, what sounds good? What am I hungry for? Now, is that a bad thing? No. But what it does do is it reveals a part of pragmatism that most people are not aware of. And that is, what is the driving factor in pragmatism as the field manual for your life? Self. It, you, you're asking yourself, what do I want? Okay. What do I want? Now, because of that, this is what happens is your life on how you live your life becomes like the China One Buffet. I bet you're thinking right now, how in the world is a pastor going to make that connection? What happens is you go up and you go, well, you know what I want is I would like a little bit of this. And then I want a little bit of that. And I want a little bit of this. And I want a little bit of that until my plate's full and I've got all this stuff that I want on it. And I go sit down and then I eat. That's called syncretism. That means I pick a little bit of this and a little bit of that. You never ask yourself, is this going to go good with that? And is it going to make me sick? Now, when my kids first started Boise State, uh, my oldest son was so, exi- so excited. And that is, is that uh, they have a place down there. Uh, the, you live in the dorm. You got this thing called the Boise River Cafe down there. And that is their uh, basic food meal plan, you know, when you live in the residence halls down there. So when, when we move him in down there, he's like, man, this is awesome. I get to go eat at the Boise River Cafe, man. You get this card to go in there. Look, they've got Mexican food. You get pizza and you get American food. You, get, you can get Italian food. You get all this kind of food, man. Oh, this is awesome. This is so incredible. After about two or three months, it's like, hey, how's it going down there? Oh, I'm so sick of that food. I'm so sick of that food. I go, well, why? Because it all tastes the same. That's pragmatism. You see, you're driven by self, and at first you're thinking, wow, this is what I really, really want. And then you get, and it is just, it all becomes bland. Life becomes bland. Your family becomes bland. Your relationships become bland. Why? Because the field manual that you chose on how to make your decisions, base your values, get direction and guidance, all produce that result. So I don't have time to go into everything uh, across the board on all these six options. I just want to talk about the Bible and uh, help you understand a few things about it. The Bible makes some really unique claims, unlike any other field manual out there, okay? And I want to read a couple to them, and then we'll kind of show you what these claims are. First of all, in the Old Testament, it says in Psalms 119, verses 9 through 11, it says the following, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to, what does it say? Your word. So whose words is he talking about? Is he saying, oh, the way you do it is you listen to King David's words because he's really, really smart. Or, hey, we want to read about what Moses said. No, what he's saying is that all the words that are written in the Old Testament are God's words, not man's words. He goes, I will seek you, God, with all of my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands which is a very important phrase because what he's saying is that God has spoken and I have a way of knowing what God has spoken by reading the words. 
He says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119, verses 105. So if you scroll down a little bit further, it says, your word is a lamp for my feet. It is a light on my path. Let's jump to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter four. It says, the word of God is living and active or alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It pierces or penetrates even dividing of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions or the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now notice what that verse is saying. It's very, very specific. It's saying that God's word is alive. So when you read it, it does stuff to you, okay? This field manual is not a dead old book. It's living. It's active. How, it, how is it active? Well, first of all, it penetrates even to the depth of your soul, right? It's not just a good idea, but boy, it can really cut down through all the layers, right, to the very thirst of the soul. It can divide between joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. Wow, so sometimes you mean myself wants things that aren't good for me? Yes. Are you saying that myself sometimes want things that aren't good for my relationships? Yes. Are you saying sometimes there's things in my family that I want that may not be good for my family? Yes. Well, how do you know? I mean, really, how do you know that? Well, the thing would be best is like, let's talk to the expert, the person who knows more about it than anybody else, has the largest data pool out there, has studied more families than anybody in human history. Well, who is that? The guy who wrote the Bible, God, our creator, you see? So, so that's what the word of God does is it helps us make wise decisions. Let's jump back to the Old Testament. Joshua, it says, keep this book of the law on your lips, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. So why do you want to follow this field manual? It makes a specific claim. The specific claim is this, is that if you follow it and you're careful to follow it, guess what? Your life is going to be absolutely miserable and you're going to be sour with a frown on your face because that's what it means to be a good Christian. That's not what it says, does it? It says, if you're careful to do according to all that is written, then you will be prosperous and successful. Now, you need to understand what biblical prosperity is, what biblical success is. It's not materialism, but it's very important to understand is that the goal of this is to bring great things into your life. Uh, the most powerful verse of all, the most point, I say the best for last, and here's the claim that this field manual makes, and that is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture, the whole Bible, is God-breathed or inspired by God. Now, what he means by that is that even though people wrote these words down on a piece of paper, what they wrote was directed by the hand of God. They weren't writing what they wanted to write. They were writing what God breathed for them to write, inspired them to write. And because it's from God, it has a tremendous value. And you know what that value is? Number one, it teaches you. It teaches you, okay, I need to learn. I want to be coached. And, you know, I want to be able to, to understand more about life. I want better relationships, better family life. I want better this, better that. Well, you got to be taught that. It doesn't happen accidentally or naturally. Last week, we talked about the law of entropy. And in physics, the law of entropy means all things generate towards wonderful order and perfection. That's why if you never mow your lawn and you never weed your, your flower bed, it'll come out perfect. 
No, entropy is everything disintegrates to chaos, right? So what it's saying is that teaching is, is brings you towards that. It's good for rebuking. You know, sometimes it's like, yeah, that's not right. I need to check my thinking. Number three, correction, correction. And then finally, training in righteousness. How do you train yourself? How do you get yourself into spiritual shape? Okay, so the Bible, Scripture, is good for this. So that the, the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, so that's living. Every good work is, how am I going to live? And you're, you're, the Bible says, this is how you do it. Now, here's a very important point that I want you to get. The Vedas make no claims that it is the words of a personal God that has a plan and purpose for your life. Zero claims. The Tripitaka makes zero claims that it is the words of God on how to live your life. The Quran makes no claims that the words Muhammad wrote were the words of Allah on how you should live your life. Only the Bible claims that it is the inspired word of God. That's an important thing to consider when you're making your choice. When you're saying, I need to make a choice of what's going to rule or guide, lead, train, coach my life. Particularly when you're married and how to get along with your spouse. Particularly if you're a parent and how to parent your kids. So let me give you a few highlights just to show you. And then later on in this series, we're going to do more challenges. We're going to dig a little deeper. The Bible says, first and foremost, that the best thing that you can do for your family is grow yourself spiritually. The best thing you can do for your family is to grow yourself spiritually. It all begins with you. When Jesus redeems you, when you are saved, you are transformed, and then your family is impacted. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, it says this, it is in Christ Jesus that we find out who we actually are and what we are living for. So our purpose and point in life can't happen apart from knowing Jesus. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, No one serving a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to to the rules. So what are your guidelines? What are your principles? What are your values? What are you living for? Are you simply existing? The Bible says that the best way to impact your marriage, the best way to impact your family is to grow yourself spiritually. Now this is a big deal because when you have a problem, right, in today's world, when you go and talk to people about it, it usually goes something like this. And that is, is that, man, my, work, my, my marriage would be great if my, you know, God changed my spouse. Man, if God just fixed my wife, everything would be fine. Women's like, man, if God just changed my husband, oh, it'd be glory days. And then and what happens is some parents are like, oh, good Lord, what would you do with my children? You know, please do something with my children. And of course, you talk to children and children are like, man, my life would be great if it wasn't for my parents. Let's get rid of my parents. And then, and then your child goes to a therapist and they sit down and they talk to the therapist and they go, you know, everything that's wrong with me is my parents' fault. You know, I can't do my homework because it's my parents' fault. 
you know, kind of thing. So you go there. And, and so you, you go to a systems counselor, and the first thing is people, oh, well, it's my parents' fault. It's my, my spouse's fault. It's my brother's fault. Man, if we could just get rid of Joey, our family would be awesome. <laughs> He's such annoyance to me. And so what happens is you get down there, and you sit there, well, this, this. Is, and so what's the first thing a therapist says? What's the very first thing he says? Well, pointing fingers and blaming doesn't solve anything. That's the truth, is that your problems change when you grow spiritually. It means when you take responsibility for what's happening in there. And you can't control everything. You can't change everything. But you can grow, and your faith can deepen, and you can get stronger, and you can change. The second thing is that not only does the Bible say start with yourself, the Bible has some very unique and special things to say to men. And that is authentic manhood is discovered within the confines of a family. This is a really unique perspective that doesn't exist in any of the other field manuals. You see, because our society has destroyed the biblical concept of family to the philosophy of pragmatism, it's shifted. Pragmatism is the rule of the day. Men are lost. You know, they float. They float from two extremes. One extreme is over here, and that is, it's called passivity. You know, it's like, I, I, it's kind of like, well, I don't want to make a mistake, so I'm not going to make a decision. You know, I've been married a while, and I know, boy, if I float something out there, she may not like it, you know, or whatever. So, so they, they, they can fall into passivity real easily, okay? And what men do is men can be practical creatures, and so they tend towards a couple of things they feel really confident about and what they do really well at. I'm just going to stay here. This is, my, this is my little field of network right here. This is my field. I'll play right here. Okay, this is my sandbox. The other extreme is this, is that, well, that's not enough for me. So they go over here, and the other extreme is here is these overrepresented expressions of, of machisma and macho-ness, you know? It's like uh, they're over the top. And so what happens is men vacillate between these two, not realizing that none of them, none of them represent biblical, authentic manhood. The Bible teaches very specifically that there is an energy about what it means to be masculine. There's an energy about that. And that energy must be directed according to the path of righteousness. Because if it's not, it goes all wiggly wild and does all kinds of crazy stuff. And it's very important to understand that. And so, but the thing is, is that we don't want to do that anymore. And you can go read the research and the studies, and there's a book out called The War on Boys, and it's, it's all fact, you know, cited and everything. It's just absolutely amazing. And how it just reveals our society at large is, is training men to not discover what authentic manhood is anymore. And that's hard on guys. That's really, really hard on guys. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, it says, says, men, you must be on alert, stand firm in your faith, act like men. Be strong. What, what a great phrase for a guy, act like men. Well, the next question is, well, what is that? I'd like to know. Well, your field manual will tell you. Authentic womanhood is discovered within the context of a family. 
Now, don't misunderstand me. If you're a single woman, that doesn't mean you're lost on the sea of despair, wondering how you will ever become an authentic woman because you're single. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that it means that the place to discover who you are and are meant to be is not on the island of self, but through the discovery of your place in a family, even if it's the family of God. Do you remember Paul Simon's song, you know, I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock never cries, or did I get it backwards? An island never cries and a rock feels no pain. You're not going to discover authentic womanhood as an individual on the island of self. You will discover it in the context of a family. Biblical marriage. The, this field manual has a lot. We're going to dig into this more next week and in, in the following weeks. Is marriages, according to this field manual, they are covenants. They are not contracts. I want you to really think about that. They are covenants. They are not contracts. A contract says, this is what the other person is supposed to do so that I'm satisfied. A covenant says, regardless of whether the other person shows up, this is what I'm going to do anyway. For instance, the Bible says, spouses are to be committed to one another regardless. They don't do things that undermine that commitment. Number two, they're to love each other unconditionally. The Bible says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Now somebody's going to go, now pastor, you don't know my husband. He's the most annoying person. You know, I have heard more women talk to their husbands in ways that are unkind. And I've heard men yell a lot of unkind things to their wives. I've had people come in, this is probably 20 years ago, you come in, they sit on the couch, whatever office I'm in at the time. It's like, you know, I know I'm supposed to fill in the blank, right? I know I'm supposed to love my husband. I know I'm supposed to do this, but you don't know my husband. He is, and then there's a list. And sometimes the list is pretty long and sometimes it's pretty bad. You know, it's like, ooh, ouch. I'm not going to write that one down. You know, <laughs> you're taking notes. So, but here's the deal that I find really fascinating. You know what the field manual says? It says in Ephesians 4.32, it says, Be ye kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God and Christ Jesus has forgiven you. And then there's this really weird thing. In English, they have this stuff called punctuation. And there's this little round black dot at the end of that sentence. It's called period. It doesn't say, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as long as they're not annoying and driving you crazy and you've told them 5,000 times and they're still doing it and they do it intentionally just to get under your skin and that's why they do it is to rub you the wrong way and to show you that they're in control and you're not in control and even though you know you can't change anybody, that doesn't really matter because what they're trying to do is get under your skin. They're trying to drive you crazy and it's working. That's not what it says. It says, forgive one another just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you, period. It's a period. This field manual says, seek out and meet one another's needs. Seek out and meet one another's needs. What are you doing? The other thing this field manual talks about is not just marriage. It talks about children. It says children are a blessing 
and you have a responsibility towards them. And in Psalms chapter 127, verse 4, it says, Like arrows in the hands of the warrior, so are children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose, full, whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed. So whether if you're married and you're in your teens, if you're married and you're in your 20s, if you're married in your 30s, if you're married and you're in your 40s, then your pastor is praying that you will have more arrows in your quiver. Why? Because it's a blessing for you. It is a blessing for you. Even if you are at that point, say you're single and you don't have kids, and you're thinking, well, you know, God's just never taken that, me down that path. What is it? Well, you in this field manual are being called to the family of God. And I can tell you this much, in the family of God, there are lots of children. How, how, what, what is your gift to give to help parents responsibly grow their children? You see, the, this is what it means, is a field manual tells you trains you, it corrects you, and it can even rebuke you on occasion. And so the bottom line is it doesn't matter what this field manual says. It doesn't matter what's written in this book if you don't make a decision to follow it. If you don't make a decision to follow it, it just won't happen. So if you haven't made that decision, or maybe subconsciously you've chosen one of these other uh, five options, then I would challenge you today to make a decision. Don't just keep going along thinking, you know, kick the can down the road, make the decision later, because that is a decision. My neighbor, his son, has a bumper sticker on his car. It says, only dead fish go with the flow. <laughs> now, I interpret that differently than he does. Don't let your family be a dead fish. Don't just go with the flow. Be that salmon that swims upstream gets where it's intending to go. Be that family. Write a family mission statement. Choose your manual. If you've made that choice in the past, then my encouragement for you is live your choice. Take it seriously. Pour yourself into it. Honor the choice that you made so that God will honor your faith. Let's stand for closing prayer. God, we just thank you and bless you that you have given us a field manual that can transform our lives. Let us have the temerity, let's have the commitment, the loyalty to know it and follow it because then we'll be prosperous and then we'll be successful and our families will be blessed. Amen. God bless you. See you next Sunday. Don't forget the reception you're all invited to for my children and their impending nuptials. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.